before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Finally, Steph yeah. and I have found time in our busy schedule <laughs> to sit down and chat together, which uh, which has been way, way too long, Steph. What the hell have you been up to? I've been uh, in hibernation, you know, fearing for the, as wonderful as the first nine months of 2020 have been. <laughs> I'm trying not to make any major moves. Uh, but, yeah, uh, yeah, it's um, it's getting curiouser and curiouser. Isn't that the truth? How is how is New York it, these days? It, uh, it is, um, you know, I I guess without dressing it up too much, it's a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, you you and I, you and I both swore that we wouldn't talk about politics right so we're right gonna, we're, we're just, gonna leave that to other we'll people let because that one just, just, we'll leave that just, matzo ball hanging out there right well you've been you've been traveling the globe as well sort of i have been traveling i've been traveling a little bit i was i was i was in uh, south carolina for a while and, and then i i couldn't stay there anymore they wouldn't let me stay there anymore so i had to leave i couldn't go home so i went to um <laughs> the uk uh and then i went uh to, to Greece for a week, which was supposed to be uh, some time on a sailboat. And I had a little bit of time on a sailboat, most of it in the middle of the perfect storm. It, over the um, toilet? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and then I came back. But, uh, you know, it's funny, the, 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 the traveling now post-COVID, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's particularly uncomfortable wearing a mask. I mean, the flight to, to Greece is four hours and the flight from um, – Charleston through Dallas to the UK was, you know, what, three hours to Dallas and then 10 hours to London. And, you know, wearing a mask for 10 hours, which you have to do unless you're eating and drinking, which I'm not quite sure how that works. That the right. virus, like, <laughs> time, you call time out and the virus is okay. Right, you're right. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, you know, it's interesting to me is how quickly people adapt to these new, you know, it's become completely normal. You don't see people, everyone's just doing exactly what they were before, except now they're wearing a mask and they wash their hands more and, you know, which which is kind of troubling in a way that how how quickly we get used to the the loss of freedoms and new rules and what have you. It's 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 been very interesting to it's see. It's a very slippery slope for sure. Yeah, it is a slippery slope. Um, well, look, you know, uh, as as I love to do, I love reading your your oh, God, um, you're such a mess your stuff every week. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I enjoy it, but but you but you always have such, such great charts. And I was reading the piece you. Um, you put out uh, last week the new manium. Oh yeah, which uh, no, which 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 was great. And so I, for me, that's what one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot, but this shouldn't be too tricky for you, seeing as you wrote it allegedly. <laughs> um, just just to talk just talk me through the kind of concept of the new manium because I, I just thought it was another fantastic piece, even notwithstanding the Seinfeld quotes and stuff. But just talk about what made you write about that and what the what the kind of construct was frustration i guess would be what motivated me <laughs> to write that <laughs> um yeah well basically for context for folks um the whole uh subject of the paper was about gold and its performance relative to the s&p and bonds and you know all the other purported um preferred let's call it preferred yeah. assets out there and you know gold is just a pet rock as we've been lectured uh, numerous times and so i thought it would be interesting to look back and see you know how gold has actually performed relative to stocks relative to treasuries 
um, over different time periods. And the, the reason I gave it the title, The New Manium, of course, was that uh, since the beginning of this millennium in 2000, gold has handily outperformed stocks and treasuries. Um, and so that was sort of my excuse to to weave in a Seinfeld, another Seinfeld reference. But what I, you know, what inspired me about it is just that, again, that sort of frustration that for some reason, when you discuss gold as a legitimate asset class, one that deserves to be uh, esteemed, you know, on the same level with stocks and bonds, uh, people just laugh at you like you're some, yeah. you know, spam and ammo hoarding lunatic who's just basically uh, doesn't get it. Um, and it's not just some short term phenomenon where, OK, we had COVID and therefore, you know, the Fed printed an enormous amount of money and therefore you need to hedge with gold. I mean, this has been the story for so long. And obviously, you know, it's not like it's new that the Fed is printing money. And that explains why gold in general has has actually done quietly very, very well yeah, for, very you know, the better part of several decades. So that was sort of my, uh, the, the impetus for writing it. Um, you know, I guess like many people who were, uh, cast aside as perma bears, it was a defense. I believe that's the phrase. Yeah. You know, it was sort of a defense of saying, sure, I've been bearish on stocks because I just can't hold my nose and invest in what I view as, a, you know, Fed-induced bubble that eventually is going to burst. I'm not clever enough to figure out the moment when the bubble can't expand any right. farther. So I'll just own gold. And, you know, as much flack as I've taken for having that view for basically the entire existence of macro mavens, which started in 2002, um, you know, the reality is that I've performed as well, if not better, in the right. positions that I've been holding, uh, than the people they trot out on CNBC routinely to talk about how brilliant they are. So, <laughs> again, yeah, but, frustration. But you, but you also, I mean, you were also uh, long bonds as well, yes. right? I mean, this was you, you, it was just equities that you were trying to steer clear Exactly, of. yeah. So, I mean, for me, gold and bonds belong together because bonds are just the mechanism by which the Fed you know, uh, prints right. the money and expands its balance sheet. So it, it seemed obvious that uh, the means to the end was going to be treasuries and then gold would be the payoff of this, you know, debaucherous policy. So, yeah. But, but have, you, have you seen anything? I mean, I, I've had this conversation with plenty of people recently and, and no one seems to have an answer. So I don't expect you to have one. But um, have you seen anything that suggests that we may be anywhere near the kind of the, the point where at least half of that trade stops working. I mean, I guess the beauty of it in all things being equal, that at the point where the bond side of that trade stops working, the gold trade normally would actually kick into right. a higher gear. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but have you, have you, have you seen anything that suggests you're ready to take that off? Cause I, you know, I, I think I'm right in saying that you're still, in the deflationary camp. I am still in the deflationary camp. Why? Have you, are you um, starting to see more impulse for inflation or? Not, no, not immediately. Yeah. Um, but I certainly, I'm certainly paying a lot closer attention to it. And I'm certainly more concerned that we're, you know, we're within sight of it now. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of false dawns yeah. of this idea, obviously. And, and every time you kind of think it's going to happen. And I, I, I spoke to Lacey Hunt recently, and who's been Very you know, a deflationist for 40 years, basically, except, you know, two periods where he changed his view and was absolutely right both times. And he's absolutely adamant that um, this continues, except, he said, if the Fed starts to directly monetize their balance sheet. Yeah. He said, if that happens, it's all bets are off. And he said, yeah, we could see violent inflation very fast. And hey, presto. Yeah. You know, we start seeing talk in the last couple of weeks about, you know, the Fed creating an account, a digital account where they can just drop money into everybody's account with this thing. Yeah. So stuff like that suggests to me that maybe this time they can actually create inflation because they're going to do it the way that you need to if you really want to do the it. The literal helicopter drop, or not literal, but yeah. sort of that way. Well, I totally would agree with that as, you know, that would completely shift my view about, deflation versus inflation. But right now, I think 
you know, I I was stunned when I went and I looked at the um, personal income versus consumer spending from February when the COVID whole lockdown yeah. started through July, which is the latest data we, we have for that. And over that stretch, unbelievably, personal income is one trillion higher than it was before right. the lockdown started. So consumers have made money in aggregate. Obviously, there's some people who didn't get anything and others who yeah. shouldn't have gotten money who did. But, you know, in aggregate, consumers are a trillion dollars ahead of where they were before the whole COVID thing. And yet spending is down something on the order of $700 billion, actually yeah. exactly $700 billion. So savings has gone up $1.8 trillion. To me, I mean, admittedly, it's early because we're only a few months into this, but the fact that consumers took this windfall of money and decided to save it rather than spend it speaks to that sort of very, um, the same problem that the Fed has encountered for the last two decades, and yeah. that is that it, the consumer has been burned by one bubble burst after another, and they're not rushing out there to spend money. They, they're really concerned about repairing their balance sheet. Until that changes, I just don't know where the, the ability for inflation to really pick up is. But the, the thing that would break it would be if you handed people enough money that they could simultaneously pay down their debt and hold the savings yeah. that they feel is necessary and increase their spending. And if that, you know, if the Fed were to just digitally put money in people's bank accounts, you'd think that would that would accomplish that. Well, I mean, look, if, you, if you kind of think about it, the beauty of the whole digital aspect is they, they could literally put money into people's accounts that vanished again if it wasn't spent within a certain period of time. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the thing that I, that I struggle with is that there's been all this talk about inflation, um, but we all know if they want it, they can do this. This is not a complicated thing. If you really want to force people to spend right. uh, and you essentially have any tools you want at your disposal because of the, the circumstances, they can do it. So, I, so I, you know, I wonder how serious they are about this because they do know, let's face it, we've, we've talked about this before, you and I, that inflation necessarily begets higher rates and higher rates beget the end of the world. Right, so, which is so deflationary. You think about it. So. Right, right, exactly right. So I, so I just wonder, there's a lot of lip service paid to this and I get why they need it. But you know, Eric's done some fantastic work on on the you know the average cost of the debt and stuff, and, and you know per his charts, um, this is your brother yes, Eric for those say. people that don't know what I'm talking about. Um, Meridian macro. Yeah, the the the, uh, the the cost of servicing the debt cannot rise by more than a percent or two at the most before it just can blows the biggest hole in the budget that that really they can't fix. So. What do they do? Well, I, I think there are two things going back to this idea of digitally just, you know, putting money in people's bank accounts and therefore you immediately get inflation. You only get inflation if people view that as permanent. You know, if you were to say, I would think, you know, we saw this in Japan where they had the vouchers that expired. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what they found, you know, you get that one-time jolt. It's sort of like cash for clunkers. Okay, people have money, they got to spend it, they go out and they do, but you're just stealing from future growth. So there's still that trick of how do you, it has to be some kind of permanent increase where people feel like, you know, okay, I'm going to spend this now. You get that one-time jolt in the economy, but it's not going to motivate them to then go out the next day without that money and, and right. spend more. So it's, I don't know. Am I missing it? It, it seems like you... No, no, no. I, no, I, I know what you mean. But, but again, the problem is, I guess, with, with these government programs, um, it's very difficult to see how they withdraw the stimulus. Right. I, mean, I know we're having a, a fight over the stimulus bill now. But um, you know, I remember, I remember um, uh, the line in Wall Street that Daryl Hannah says when he talks about you know, having money and, and losing it is worse than having never had it at all. And, and it's so true. And once you start putting 1200 bucks in people's bank accounts... Um, a good luck getting rid of it, and B, I don't know how long it takes before people do start counting on that money, and they do think it's permanent. But I would imagine human nature being what it is, and and the kind of household debt levels being what they are, people are going to be very willing to believe it's permanent quite quickly. I would imagine. Well, I listened to a really fascinating discussion between Stephanie 
uh, Kelton. Kelton. And Paul. She's known as the other Stephanie. The other, you know that, right? yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and Paul McCulley. And uh, they were discussing, obviously, modern monetary theory. And uh, what was interesting about it, I listened to it because I thought, okay, I want to hear how they explain this in a way that makes it actually seem reasonable. And at the end of the hour and 45-minute conference call, I actually came away thinking, you know, these people aren't as crazy as all the headlines make them sound because... Not, it seemed like they weren't even disputing the idea that at some point, if you just print money, you will spur inflation. Their argument, yeah. and I think it gets into what we're talking about here, is that when the economy is down and you have slack and you have all these deflationary forces, it's not the time to debate over how much, how many pay-fors you need to have, you know, if you're going to have a trillion dollars worth of stimulus, where are you raising taxes to you know, offset that, or how are you going to pay for it yeah. down the road and this kind of stuff? They they just said, you know, just go for it and inject as much money as you need to support the economy, and then you can reel it back in, and that's the trick, you know, reeling it. Yeah. That's well, the <laughs> part that falls down. But what was fascinating about it was, as I started to think about it more, um, you know, clearly we've reached a point where we're having this discussion because the futility of monetary policy has become clear to almost everyone and zero yeah. percent you know you're really if you continue to down this road and you go negative or whatnot you're doing more harm than good and there's a lot of evidence to show that that is true um and so it's a time naturally for the baton to be passed to fiscal of course our fiscal policymakers aren't willing to get together and actually right, do anything but were they willing to do it? it you can reimagine economic policy where fiscal was the first line of defense rather than the Fed cutting rates, which boosts debt levels, which creates this box that we're now in where we can't handle yeah. any increase in rates, et cetera. But you can have sort of an automatic stabilizer thing where, you know, if let's say every one percentage point increase in the unemployment rate you immediately release $200 billion worth of stimulus through whatever avenue tax cuts are spending into the economy. And conversely, when the unemployment rate goes down 1%, you know, you, you take that out. I mean, if we could automate something like that, it would be a much more effective tool for supporting the economy and, and making sure that you had stable prices than what we've been going through for the last 40 years, basically. <laughs> Right. right. I mean, this but, era but, of monetary policy that started in 19, you know, in the 80s when Volcker finally, you know, at the, once Volcker left, this became a whole yeah. uh, bubble blowing exercise. And it, it seems like we're now seeing people say, hey, you know, maybe this wasn't the wise way. Maybe we really need to rethink how we approach economic cycles and respond yeah. to them. I don't know. Is but 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 the, the, you know the, the, again I keep coming back to the same issue and that is the the only people I think who would have a harder time withdrawing stimulus than central bankers are politicians yeah. and so you know you can kind of set this thing on autopilot all you want but every two years in some form or another this is going to run into an election yeah. of some of some form and so you know, how do you do that because you know, we we all realise that the whole goal here is power and, and and a getting it and then b keeping it um rinse and repeat so i i just struggle to see how anyone is going to have the guts to step up and talk about the flip side because i mean even in this cycle you know there's nobody nobody's talking tough normally there's someone talking tough about the economy right someone's out there talking tough in the run-up to an election right. but we're not seeing that and and i i struggle to see how that comes back and, and having having traveled in europe and stuff recently you can see just how uh decimated the the tourism industry has been you know greece was empty hmm. i mean just just ridiculous nobody anywhere um i haven't been into london yet i'm going to go up to london next week um but f you know from talking to friends of mine similar it's 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 kind of coming back a little bit but there's no traffic on the roads you, you can just feel the economy is absolutely still on its knees mm -hmm. and 
restaurants are shuttered and shops are shuttered everywhere you go. And it's really, you talk about post-apocalyptic hellscape. Obviously, this is England, so it's far more uh, genteel than that. But, <laughs> but it's still, but it's still, um, you know, it's, 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 it's post-apocalyptic for sure. It's just not a hellscape. It's, um, you know, whatever the English are calling it, a hellscape is. Uh, so I, so I, I, I just I feel as though we, we're going to need an awful lot more stimulus for an awful lot longer. I mean, in fact, in the UK, um, this week they're talking about, uh, you know, more support for people's wages. And I, I've just, in the process of writing my latest piece, and I went through a list of all the um, stimulus being applied by countries around the world. You know, there's been 200 sure. um, stimulus programs incorporated in the last six months around the world. And, We're you know, 199 from, of those here in the U.S. <laughs> no, surprisingly, when you, when you go through it, actually the U.S., surprisingly, has been actually pretty poor. You know, they've, they've thrown 1,200 bucks at people as a one-time thing when, you know, you go to Japan and, you know, the maximum uh, subsidy there is up to 100% of your wages. Um, Sweden, 95% of your wages. You know, New Zealand, 75% of your wages. Uh, other countries, it's like you know, three grand every month, literally every month, coming through the door. Holland and Austria and places like that. You know, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable amount of stimulus going into the economy See, all around the you're world. You're just talking fiscal, then, because I was thinking on the yeah, monetary yeah. side, like they're buying basically everything they can. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's exactly it. So, so if you think about what they're doing and and what the results are, the only real, I think, well, there's two positive results you can point to. One is the world hasn't literally imploded and fallen apart and turned into a, 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 you know, a free-for-all. There are three months which in left. certain parts of the United three States, I know, <laughs> has happened. And the second one, obviously, you can say the stock market's going up, which is such a limp thing to point at, but it seems like the only thing they can hang their hat on at the moment. Well, the other thing they can hang their hat on, which I was going to try to write about for my thing this week, is... It looks like we're reinflating a housing bubble too. Yes. And yeah. from the standpoint, you know, getting back to getting people to spend, the wealth effect from housing is obviously multiples of what it is for the stock market. So I think uh, economists estimate 10 cents of increased spending for every dollar increase in stocks, and it's right. 40 cents for every dollar increase in your your real estate. But, you know, how likely, again, are consumers to spend these unrealized gains in their homes after the experience they had just a decade ago doing the same thing. So I don't know, but I, but that's the one place where the Fed's, you know, bubble inflating exercise has a chance of actually goosing economic activity would be through that cash out refi bonanza all over again. Um, but anyway, I'm sorry, I just... But no, but you, but you, you had some great um, charts in uh, in um, the piece you wrote. Uh, what was it called? Uh, oh, when yeah. Stupidity succeeds. I, oh yeah. See, I can't remember the names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but you, you had you had some fantastic charts there about this, right? You had you had the chart of um, that, uh, mortgage loans year on year, which were down. Yeah, I mean, uh, three or four percent, and the um, credit card debt. People are using; they're taking the cash out refi, and they're using those that saving to pay down credit card debt and and such. Right. And they're actually reducing the size of their mortgage balances rather than you know borrowing it yeah. like they had before. So, you know, I raise that as a possibility that you know it could flip, but right now it doesn't seem like that's going to feed any kind of growth in consumer spending. But, it, you know, it's hard to know how much of this consumer restraint is just a function of the fact that the economies are still closed and everyone's still in this mental that bunker mentality that we were talking about, you know, where people are just, yeah. you know, they've got their masks on and they're washing their hands and they're not trying to go out and spend and do stuff. And maybe, you know, when things get back to normal, they'll heave a giant sigh of relief and run out and make up for lost time, and I'll have massive amounts of egg on my face. But <laughs> uh, right, so but, far. But, it's but the, the but you know at the same time this this housing bubble, and I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I made a note to to ask you about it anyway. Um, is happening at a time when mortgage rates are actually becoming much tighter. I mean, it's not just a little bit. I mean, they are they are really tightening. So you know something about it it doesn't make sense to me. You know, you've got You've got prices going up. At the same time, it's harder to borrow money to finance them. You've got people 
I think you had the chart of the number of um, mortgages that that resulted, uh, sorry, refis that resulted in a five percent or more right. increase in the mortgage. Rate. That's four. Right. Uh, so something I, I don't know what it is, but something in there is ringing alarm bells to me. I, I don't quite understand where this bid is coming from in the housing market. Is it millennials trying to get out? Because I also read a survey saying fifty-two percent of them live at home with their parents. So well, I, I, I just can't figure it out. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I thought it was interesting. So I went and actually looked at what share of the, um, what share is first time home buyers uh, and under 35, age 35. And so you've seen a huge increase. If you look at the home ownership rate, just between, I think it was from March to now, it's done like a, top higher. It's still way below where it was in 2008. Yeah. I think the peak was 69 then or something. And now we're at like, don't, you know, uh, test me on this, but 67 and it was up, you know, from 63 in just a couple of months. So it made a huge jump. It's still below where it was. But you saw that same pattern in people aged under 35, which surprised me because I've, you know, I thought, like you said, most of those people were living in their parents' basements and that kind of stuff. Um, but apparently, maybe with their CARES Act money, they went out and yeah. um, got loans. But on the other, also, um, you know, it makes you worry about the banks because they've been tightening lending standards on autos and credit cards. But they're clearly lax when it comes to mortgage loans. Um, so we'll see what happens. Because the other chart I did when I looked at that 35-year-old uh, first-time home buyer was let's look at the unemployment rate for 35 and under, right. and of course, you know, it's the same line. You know, they both are the home ownership rate, the unemployment rate are both going up, which is not a good combination. Um, you know, somewhere down the line, that's going to be a problem. But I, I don't think that you know maybe that's part of what you're seeing in terms of the that kind of housing oddity right now. Well, but what? Okay. Well, so what about unemployment then? Because this, these, these numbers are remarkably stubborn. You know, they they don't seem to be initial claims don't seem to be falling. Continuing claims are going higher. Um, you know, this is another strange one for me because it almost looks as though the unemployment figure, which was something that the market always used to fixate upon, you know, that was always a number that would move the market if it if it missed by mm -hmm. in, in either direction. And it just seems like people are looking past it again. It just doesn't seem to matter anymore. And I'm, I'm again, I'm curious about that because it's such a yes, it's a lagging indicator. We all kind of know that, but still, the numbers are, are so far off any kind of ability to create a recovery narrative that it, it's it's baffling to me how the market seems to look past it. No, I totally agree with you, especially when you think about it if the numbers don't really start to come down from here, if 8% or even 7% turns out to be sort of where we settle, what that means for delinquencies on you know right. credit cards, mortgages down the line, um, I mean, that's going to be like you and I talked about in one of the first uh, super terrific happy hours. I've done the chart that overlaid the unemployment rate and the delinquency rate. And I realized after I did it that they were the same scale. So, right. you know, it's like 7% right. unemployment rate would give you a 7% delinquency rate. These are not good numbers. Um, so we'll see. But I, I guess I share your your um, befuddlement as to why those numbers don't capture more attention and why people are willing to to look past them. Um, you know, I guess maybe one thing is that the uh, corporate earnings guidance, and I say yep. this with my tongue firmly, <laughs> firmly. in my cheek, uh, <laughs> has been better in the third quarter than expected. I think FactSet had some headline that said it was like the highest third quarter, you know, the highest tendency to upward guidance and however long, you know, pay no attention to the fact that you know, it was absolutely horrific for the two quarters before. But so maybe people are looking past it and they're listening to what these companies are saying and, and believing that, you know, we're going to be right back to normal and they're going to hire back all their workers and everything's going to be just super hmm. terrific. I, I don't know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be happy? But, but okay, but, but let's, 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 let's talk about the markets then, because when you look at the equity markets, 
this has been another weird September. I mean, we've seen some real weakness. I mean, X the, X the fangs, which themselves have had some pretty nasty days. Mm-hmm. The market, again, looks kind of shaky, and yet we haven't seen the kind of panic associated with a fall like this. We haven't really seen too much uh, jawboning from the Fed to try and step in the way of it. We've seen the dollar turn around in the last week or so mm-hmm. pretty dramatically. How do you piece all, all that together? The, the dollar, the dollar first. Let's talk about that because you and I are both, you know, long-term structural bears for the dollar. What, what do you? Th- is this just a, um, a snapback rally, or do you think something material is going on with this dollar strength? I mean, I think it's just a snapback rally, but I think that it's related to this whole conversation about fiscal versus monetary policy. You know, we had a week of basically every single member of the Fed on their hands and knees begging for fiscal policymakers yeah. to pick up the ball and, you know, run with it. Because, I, it, I mean, it's short of them flailing their arms and saying, we, we've done everything we can do. We need help, help, help. Um, that seems to be the message. And I think, I don't know, if I were, that's my interpretation of why the dollar is stronger, is that the Fed is basically saying, look, we're, we've done what we can do. Uh, you know, within what we're comfortable doing. Um, And we really want to put the pressure on fiscal policymakers. Sure, they could do more. You know, they still have all the um, credit facilities that they haven't really even begun to fill up. Um, So they have plenty of runway to do more. But I think they're really trying to put the pressure on Congress to actually come together and do something because they're so exasperated by the failure to get some fiscal support. So I think that's the message. And I feel like that, you know, obviously I have my own narrative. So I look at the markets through that narrative. And and if that's my narrative, I understand why the dollar is strong because the Fed's basically saying, you know, uncle. Um, And right now the fiscal policymakers aren't taking up the slack. So it seems like that might be why. What what do you, how do you just, you know, yeah, wrestle I, with the dollar I, and I, yeah, it's, I mean, similar. I, I I think you know, there's there's we're seeing the stress in places like Turkey. You know, we're seeing uh, we are seeing a mad scramble for dollars in in certain parts of the world. Um, and so, I, you know, to to me, maybe it's a short squeeze. I don't know. I, I'm I'm still not convinced. Um, it's interesting to watch on Twitter the the dollar balls come out of hiding and, and, and be jumping all over this, which I understand because they were getting hammered by the dollar bears for, for quite a while. I, you know, the, but I think you, you look, if you look at a lot of charts, and I was looking at the S&P uh, yesterday, the S&P um, uh, equal weighted has gone nowhere for mm-hmm. two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dollar's really not gone anywhere for, I forget what the number is, but it's for some considerable amount of time. We've had these big swings, but, and I think because everybody staked out such a strongly held position on both sides of that every move they forget about where it is within the long-term range they just look at it in the short term uh in both directions and it, it like everything it's just become amplified that the, the, the battle over the dollar has become amplified and so you know I, I don't really know i think it needs to move decisively in one direction but if that move is decisively higher I don't see how that doesn't get squashed because if it isn't squashed, then all hell is let loose. You know, if the dollar if the dollar starts looking like it wants to go to a hundred, I mean, you can only imagine the chaos that will cause. Well, and so, I, when you look at what they're doing and what they're trying to stop, the strong dollar is absolutely probably the number one thing they they need to stop. Yeah, well, I would expect that it wouldn't be long before we started getting tweets about how. The dollar needs to oh, go yeah. down, so for sure um, that'll definitely be up there. One thing that I have noticed, though, is as brutal as the last week has been for gold today. Anyway, it looks like even in the face of dollar strength, it's holding on there pretty well. I think relative to what we've seen in terms of the move in the dollar, gold has actually done okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's just... <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're in, the, in the bizarre situation of people talking about you know, a price at around 1880 as weakness, you know, which is which 
dollar bull, uh, gold bulls would have killed for for, for yeah. nine years, right? I mean, yeah. 1880 was was the promised land for so many people for such a long time. And it's interesting that it, you know, it kind of shot through and went up to as near as damn it, 2100 bucks. Kind of, it, there wasn't an awful lot of fanfare about it, I, I didn't think. I mean, relative to what an important move that was. So to see it back you know, below 1900 and people talking about how disastrous it is, it just shows you just how short-term most people's thinking has become around all these things. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I, um, I, I've spent the last week with a, with a friend of mine um, talking about a lot of this stuff, and he, you know, he's, he's very much a long-term investor and has a very long-term perspective on these things. And, and you know, when you talk to someone like that, it really changes the way you, you think about things. Because I think we all get caught up, particularly if you're on Twitter, right? You can't help it. It's such a short-term um, it's such a short-term marketplace. Every conversation on Twitter. I mean, there, there is, there's no longevity in any conversation on Twitter. You're, you're, you're either right or wrong in the moment, uh, and the next day, if you turn out to be wrong, everybody's piling in. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And I think it's so easy to get caught up in that short-termism and 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 miss the miss the wood for the trees because it's, um, as I say, I, you know, I think long-term the gold price to me looks constructive i mean i we i think we all expected this kind of washout i mean silver obviously has been way more dramatic mm-hmm. but it was on the way up in the last month as well so I, I, that, that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that has followed it. the people who are late to the party will probably stand there scratching their heads wondering how the hell it can do that but th- that just comes with the territory but um you know I, I've, I've sat and watched all this for the for the last little while and and say look at these charts again as i'm writing with the perspective that that spending time with a long-term investor has given me, it really does change the way you look at this stuff. And, and there's an awful lot of noise mm-hmm. and there's an awful lot of sturm and drang, but there's nothing's really done anything decisive, you know, except one could argue the things like the US budget deficit, yeah. which ought to be very negative for the dollar. And the Fed balance sheet. Long-term. And the, and the Fed right, balance right. sheet, yeah. The, and, and the ECB balance sheet and, and, yeah. and all these things. I mean, th- those... Those are long-term situations that are not going to change anytime soon. And so, I, you know, I, I, I try and look at those longer-term indicators to get a picture and and just block out all the noise in the markets for the time being. Um, but it's not easy to do. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a really noisy world we live in right now. Well, you should do what I do, and that is not use Twitter. <laughs> Well, yes. <laughs> oh my god makes it so much easier if you just crawl into your cave you know you don't have to deal with all this stuff but you know uh, on that note i have been going back and forth a lot with bob rodriguez and he has been buying aggressively in here um buying gold because uh, he thought here's another person with a very long-term perspective yeah. who really looks at the big trades. He's not trying to time, you know, the next uh, hot stock or whatever for the yeah. next few months. And he sees gold as, you know, at 1880 as a screaming buy and an opportunity to really jump in there and, and expand this position. So, um, you know, that's just a further reinforcement that, the yeah. things, like you said, the things that really matter, the big changes that we've seen here um, are the massive monetary stimulus globally and the fiscal um, response as well. And and I think our conclusion we probably both share is that we've got a lot more coming, especially, you know, once hopefully, you know, the fiscal policymakers will finally put down their uh, cudgels or whatever after the election and and be able to come together on something uh, to preempt the wave of bankruptcies that we would see personal and, and business um, by coming together with some policy. But obviously that's going to have to be monetized by the Fed, which will inure to the benefit of gold and, and to the detriment of the dollar. It just, it seems like that is our trajectory um, it, yeah, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, as I say, I, I struggle to see past that stuff. I mean, it, it, it's the, these are truly big moves, and and I, and I think focusing on the dollar move in the last couple of weeks and what it might portend on a chart, and what gold's breakdown might portend on a chart is to miss is to miss the big picture here. And, and I, and I, you know, I, I don't know how to to help people 
think of it in those terms because I think a lot of people are are, are hostage to that whole short yeah. cycle. If I'm not right tomorrow, I'm wrong, and and it's and it's difficult. And, and you know that's not the fault of a lot of people. They just don't have the leeway to be wrong for any more than a day or or maybe a week or a month or some cases a quarter. But if you're wrong for a quarter, you know the phone is ringing off the hook, and it and it's. It just becomes a, a massive problem for you, and, and, I, and I don't know what ends that. Um, and, and maybe it doesn't end. Maybe it just means that the people who are who are able to think that way, and able to position that way, and able to find investors who will allow them to to be wrong if the rationale smart and the long term metrics add up. Maybe we do get a, a period where value investors, long term investors have a chance to once again actually prove their worth. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I would guess that being in this lockdown situation has only intensified that short-term focus because yeah. people are they're bored. They have nothing to do. So they're on Twitter and they're following every little tick on every little stock. Um, so it's, you know, hyper-focused, hyper-short-term right now, um, which is kind of ironic because it's a time to really step back and be thinking about the big picture changes yeah. that are taking place. Because again, you know, I know I was very ham-handed in the way I tried to describe this fiscal monetary thing, but we're really seeing, we've reached the end of monetary policy efficacy. I mean, at this point, we're just, yeah. everything they do just inflicts so much more damage than it does good. And Right now, no one cares because they're enjoying the free ride in the markets. And as long as assets are inflating, it's great. But once that ends, I think there's going to be a real come to Jesus moment for the Fed and other central banks. You know, uh, to use a, a sports analogy, it's three strikes, you're out. They inflated and burst the dot-com bubble. They inflated and burst the housing bubble, which brought the GFC. And this one really combines both of those. We've got stocks, we've got housing, you know, we've got everyone in the pool. Um, and when this thing goes down, it's going to be like nothing we've, we've seen before. And, you know, that's, to me, that's the overarching framework and figuring out how, it, admittedly, it's impossible to tell because who knows? You and I have talked about how, you know, we'd end up going on to some new monetary regime and, and the gold would have a role to play in that in yeah. some form or fashion. And that that would come about by, you know, it being forced upon policymakers that, you know, now this is the only way that we can get back to some sense of normalcy and rein in what at that point will be some hyperinflationary backdrop. Um but then the question is, you know, what's the paradigm, what's the framework on the other side of that? What does that look yeah. like? And, I mean, you could spend the next four months on lockdown thinking through that one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I, I, I don't know. This whole idea of a, of, a, of a reset of sorts has been something that, you know, it's kind of been floating around and people have been talking about it for a long time in many cases. Mm -hmm. It's certainly gaining a little more traction now, but but still, it's it's obvious that people have a really difficult time in conceptualizing what the end of a of a regime of a of a of a monetary paradigm looks and feels like. But it's it's hard to imagine it looks or feels any different than this. You know what I mean? I mean, we're, I mean, we're seeing we're seeing the the. the abject debasement of just about every currency yeah. on the planet and 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 it's now become policy <laughs> to devalue and debase those currencies explicit there's no right. there's no hiding this this is not been left for interpretation they've actually said this is what we're going to do yeah. and we won't stop until we do it we're seeing you know we're seeing uh, incredible um inequality which again you and i i'm sure will agree that can be placed squarely at the feet of central banks, uh, even though they they routinely come out and say we don't see any equality, and we certainly don't think our policies have anything to do with it. Right. Um, and now, you know, particularly in the US, all around the world, we're seeing images of nightly stuff going on in in, in dark streets in we you are know, all over the United States that suggest that 
the, the, the hegemon, the leader of the free world, is falling apart internally. And, and I don't mean that before any Americans listening start <laughs> digging into me. I don't mean that as a criticism of America. I mean it as an observation of what is being sent around the world. And unfortunately, when that is the image that the world gets to see every night, it becomes real in people's minds and it may be different on the ground and it may be, you know, that those things are isolated incidents, but it's all people are seeing. You know, I know here in the UK, yeah. um, it's all you're seeing. And and the people that I've spent time with in the last couple of weeks and talked to, it's all they want to talk about. You know, have you seen the latest stuff? And uh, and so I just can't, I just struggle to think if if the end of some kind of monetary regime feels different to this, I'd love to be able to figure out how it would feel different to this because this to me has all the ingredients of that. Yeah. Well, it's uh, interesting to remind ourselves that it's as impossible, as difficult as it is to think of a different monetary regime. This one's only been in place for 50 years. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, not even. So it, it's sort of not that far-fetched to imagine that, this one will end and a new one will begin and life will go on and we'll figure out a way to move forward. Um, but I, you know, unfortunately getting from here to there, I feel confident and I don't say this in a happy, confident way, but it, uh, you know, morose, confident way is going to involve some real unpleasantness beyond what we've seen right now. Um, that obviously makes me worry about what you're talking about. Those scenes that, people are seeing around the yeah. world of, you know, Portland and other places just in flames. Um, and it's, you know, it is scary. And it is, again, you know, something that I think you can throw back to the Fed. And it's so easy to trace. If you overlay the Gini coefficient, you know, the wealth inequality with the S&P, they pretty much march in step, you know. So it's yeah. it's um, not a mystery. Yeah. Well, we need we need to uh, we need to finish uh, on something either super terrific or happy. <laughs> right, right. We, we can't oh finish on that. I know. It, that, that was that was way too a, dire. That's a bit of a downer. Oh my I, I mean, gosh! You, you and I, contrary to many people's popular belief, are essentially happy souls. We are. I think that's fair to say, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I just try to keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Aww. So, so let's. I mean, let's 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 try and finish on 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 a good note. And, and I'm 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 going to come back to gold with that, and um, specifically the mining stocks. We haven't oh, talked. Yeah. About we talked a little bit about them with um, with Dave Ivan. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I'm I'm definitely seeing so many signs that uh, you know the 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 nascent bull market in these things is really just getting done. You know, and they've had a rough week this week. But you know, even even the performance as as gold and silver have corrected has been incredibly instructive for for people like us who've watched these things for so long mm -hmm. uh, and seen how poorly they act. Really, I mean, they normally act so terribly in any kind of weakness in the metals. But you know, two things that I, that I want to talk to you about that, that I've seen. One is, is as I said, they, they they seem, relatively speaking, at least, much more resilient to to weakness in in, in the, the metals. metals this time. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a great sign. But secondly, and probably more importantly, listening to a lot of the CEOs of these companies talking about, you know, prudence and talking about, you know, getting costs down and not getting sucked into this thing. Now, sure, we've heard this before, but um, normally they, when they say that, it's against the backdrop of everybody trying to raise money and you know, dilute the shareholders and do all that stuff. And we're just not seeing that. We've seen a couple of deals go through and we've seen – you know, I think some really constructive things happening in in that space. Am I wrong, or are you seeing anything that I'm not in in the mind? No, I totally agree with you. And actually, I um, have started to try to build a position in the miners because it feels like as as good as uh, as well as gold will do in the next you know year or so. Uh, the miners are probably where you want to be as people start to yeah. respect gold and the thesis behind gold, that's when the miners should really take off because obviously you get tremendous leverage to the bullion. Um, but I think the reason why you and I and all of the people that uh, we know in, in this sort of, uh, who've been bullish on gold um, have suffered in these stocks for so long is there's been this sort of asymmetric 
uh, situation where gold would go up, the gold miners would go nowhere, and then gold would go down, and the gold miners would get <laughs> annihilated. Get <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of our life for however yeah. many years. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Right, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and you could see that reflected in, you know, the relationship between the, the value of the miners and, and bullion, which was, yeah, if they, didn't they had an all-time record low relative to the bullion, yeah. um, yep. you know, when in 2018 or something. Um, and they've started to slowly kind of, uh, you know, lift themselves off the map. But these stocks could triple easily just to get back to what would be a fair valuation. And that's assuming gold goes nowhere from here. If gold were to actually right. go to 3000, you know, Katie bar the door. So I'm with you. I well, and, but, the other, but the other point you made, uh, I'm not sure where you made it. I, I, I know it was you that made it. Maybe it was just you and I talking, but you were talking about you know, the lack of institutional ownership yeah, of these things yeah. because of the size of the market and, and how once the money starts coming in, that it's such a reflection. Just talk about that. Bit. Yeah. I, don't want to, I, don't, I don't want to take your idea. No, and no, no. Well. I mean, so I'll let you talk I don't have much to add to that, except that, you know, a lot of the, the large institutions that I cover would just, you know, they'd agree with me and they'd be nodding their heads about the whole thesis. And then when it came down to, you know, how do we position this? And I'd say, well, you just buy the gold miners. Well, it's too small to be investable was yeah. the, the response I got. And, uh, you know, I think that's, it's one of those classic lines that you know when you hear it is just the sign of the bottom. Um, it's sort of yeah. like, you know, when there's a shortage of treasuries, you know, that's the point where there's <laughs> right. definitely right. no shortage anymore, right? So, yeah. uh, so I, I think that it's a problem that will cure itself very quickly, you know, as the miners double and triple in short order. Um, uh, but it's interesting, too. I think that uh, one of the reasons why they could have that view was obviously that the market cap was so small, um, but also because the quote unquote opportunity costs of not owning more of the fangs or whatnot was so great. Yeah. And now you're starting to see a little bit of, That's of, a great point. of that yeah. come off. You know, it's, you're not going to be chastised for reducing your exposure to, you know, Facebook or whatever. Um, to build a little bit more of a position in gold, I would think. But. Yeah, no, that's actually a great point. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. Actually, you know, I, 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 I could have done a really, really good job there and finished on that super terrific happy note. But there's one other <laughs> thing I wanted to ask you about, which is which is going to drag drag you kicking uh, and screaming back into the gutter I again. I thought I was out. Uh, they pulled me back in. <laughs> um, and that is uh, the the pension fund oh, yeah. industry. And um you know, we had a conversation, you and I, a few weeks ago when we were trying to get our diaries to line up to record this and it just never happened. But we were talking then about, you know, police and firemen and early retirements and that. Just, 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 I know you pay a lot of attention to the pension fund industry and the levels of underfunding. Where is that now? Because obviously COVID has caused dramatic changes to Yeah. Me. Well, what's interesting is that the pension thing, it was always sort of a non-issue for most people because if, we had this massive pension deficit. It didn't really matter because it would somehow magically repair itself. Yeah. You know, the, in, in Australia they say she'll be right. She'll be, she'll be right. Okay. Ah, she'll be right. Uh, and you know, with the hair raising experience in let's say the the early part of the COVID, where the market collapsed, um, probably got that pension issue a little more attention. But then, of course, when the market rebounds, people say, okay, good. Now they're all fine again. Now we don't have to worry about yeah. it. Meanwhile, I think, you know, the problem now isn't what's happening on the asset side. It's what's happening with the, the uh, payout side in terms of these retirements. And so I started thinking about it because I was reading these stories about all the police who, not surprisingly, have decided that you know, working a thankless job for no pay yeah. and, you know, and being, defunded. And being yeah. defunded and having your life at risk isn't really a compelling uh, career choice. So as they retire in droves, I was thinking, OK, maybe this will be the trigger for the pension crisis. You know, we saw the Dallas police pension thing triggered yeah. kind of a run on the crisis. And you could see that kind of spreading like wildfire. Um, so I started looking at it and then it occurred to me, you know, the other constituent that is likely to 
see a wave of retirement because of the COVID thing is teachers. And you were reading stories about the teachers being so reluctant to go back to the classroom. And then I looked at all these um, studies about the average age of teachers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are, you know, older, not necessarily 70, but a, a huge portion of them, I think like two thirds were between, you know, 50 and 60, 57 and 65 or something, you know, they're, they're mm -hmm. in their older years and probably don't feel the need to take those chances. Listen, I might just remind you that I, I'm not going to speak for you, obviously, but well, I am close to that age demographic. So let's not talk about too much in terms of older years, if you don't mind. I, I'm not that far behind age. you, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. So, um, But anyway, uh, and they, they aren't that far from when they would retire. Anyway, so this is a potential catalyst for teacher retirement. So I thought, well, let me look at the numbers. And it turns out, this blew my mind, that in the United States, there are something on the order of 700,000 uniformed police officers. That's it, 700,000 for the entire <laughs> country. There are 14 million teachers. Um, and Whoa. in Michigan, there was some study where they asked, uh, there was a survey to see how many teachers were considering early retirement because of the COVID thing. 30% said yes, they were considering wow. it. So if you take 30% of 14 million, you know, you're going to have a pension problem. Um, heck, yeah. you take 10%, yeah. 1%, you know, because they're already underfunded. So any, any shift in their assumptions about what they're going to have to pay out has the potential to wreak real havoc. So yes, you screwed up royally because now we didn't end on a good note. <laughs> But, well, uh, uh, I'm trying to think how to spin this positively, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm failing miserably. But, that, but those numbers are astonishing. Yeah. I mean, 14 million teachers. Yeah. That is amazing. It, I had no me idea. Me neither. But uh, it's been a long wow. time since I've been in school. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, well that, you know, that is definitely something we have to keep tabs on because I suspect that story is not going anywhere for any time soon. I wouldn't soon. think so. I wouldn't think so. But, um, you know, so far you don't hear much about it because I think a lot of it is, a lot of these issues are being covered for the time being by all the yeah. stimulus. And this is why I guess the Democrats and Republicans can't come together. The, the real um, breakdown is on whether to give money to the states who are demanding more support. Yeah. And I think... You know, the administration says we don't want to bail out states that were already underwater. And the fact is they were all in that situation with very few exceptions. Yeah. So if that's going to be the threshold, then no one's going to get any money. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But in the meantime, the pension uh, situation continues to boil. Um, and you can trust that I will be keeping tabs on that very closely. That much, <laughs> that much I know. Since you, you're, you're my go-to pension vulture. I know that I know that if I need anything new on it, I can go to you. But but you know the pension stuff. I guess by definition, it's it's not a problem until it blows up. Because you know what can you do about it? There's nothing you can do to try and ensure yourself against the pension. It's not a position you can take in case the pension fund blows up, right? Because it's once that industry goes, it's just who knows? It'll have to be bailed out somehow oh, straight yeah. away. Oh, for sure. It's so massive. But also, you know, now the headlines are coming. We had already seen the thing with CalPERS increasing leverage. Yeah. Um, and then today Bloomberg had a story about how um, after decreasing their exposure to equity equities for many years, now pension funds are deciding that because rates are 0.67, you know, now is the time to really beef up their exposure to equities. So we know how the story is going to end. Um, but yeah. in the meantime, yeah. you know, they're doing exactly what the Fed is forcing them to do, which is to hold their nose and get long all the stuff that's really massively overvalued already and is sure to lose a lot of that value very quickly <laughs> at some point. And so means... they got that going for them, <laughs> which is nice. Oh, man. Well, listen, we, we, listen, no one can say we didn't take a stab at finishing on a super terrific and happy note, and maybe I can edit this out and do the, <laughs> edit it in the other order so that we do this bit before and I'll, I'll see what I can do, but um, it's not going to be possible, let's face it. You're the technology maven, so I'm going to leave that to you. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> well, look, Steph, as always, 
so much fun and uh, we need to try and make sure we don't leave it quite so long before we do the next no, one of these because it's uh it's just too much fun it, it is but you know again we'll be hurting for topics i think because yeah right. i think the next um, three months will be very quiet <laughs> yeah I, th- I suspect so i'm looking i'm looking forward to a nice peaceful november i might just right. put my feet up in november and do nothing <laughs> Well, look, before we go, just remind people where they can't follow you on Twitter. Oh, yeah. I actually have to try to remember what my handle is. I think it's at Steph Palmboy. No. No. Come on. You get one more go. At S Palmboy. I got it. You got okay. it. You got it. So if you if you want to uh, if you want to follow everything that Steph doesn't Gosh. tweet, that is the place to go. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that easily at ttmygh. So uh, hopefully, Steph, we'll do this again soon. But in the meantime, as always, thank you so much. I thoroughly thank enjoyed you. this, as always. As did I. I hope you have safe travels and stay healthy and keep those. I hope hands I have washed. some travels. I hope I have some travels. <laughs> yeah, well, safe ones. But... We'll see. Uh, all right, let's do this again. Ta ta. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs> Nothing we discussed during the super terrific happy hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.